Welcome back to the Historically Haunted Podcast. I'm your host, Ariel, and thank you all so much for being here for today's episode. This was a listener's suggestion made by our listener, Scott, and it's about the history and hauntings found in Boise, Idaho. Now, before I begin, I have a little bit of housekeeping to take care of. Um, First of all, I hope that you all had a good holiday and let me be the last person on earth to wish you a happy new year. If you follow me on Instagram or Facebook, then you probably heard that I came down with a really bad virus on New Year's Eve, and I honestly didn't feel 100% until about the last week of January. To those who wish me a speedy recovery, thank you guys so much for the kind words. After I got better, I hurried to finish and then post the first bonus episode for my Patreons of the new year, and it's about five haunted castles in the UK with some really cool history. And speaking of Patreons, I have some new ones to thank, and they are Jennifer, Gina, and Megan. Thank you guys so much for signing up. If anyone is interested in helping me pay for monthly host fees and things like that, I do have a link down below in the show notes to my Patreon page. I post bonus episodes whenever I have time for just my Patreons, and you will also get a thank you card with a logo sticker in the mail along with a shout out on my show to show my appreciation. So again, thank you, everybody. Even though my year got off to a really rocky start, I'm very optimistic about 2023 because I have some really cool plans for the show. Last week, I had a really nice meeting with Allison, the graphic designer who created the show's logo, starring our new little ghost friend, and she is helping me create some new designs for official Historically Haunted merchandise. I will let you all know when that is available because I also have to create an official website, so it's going to be a lot, and I'm a little nervous about it because it's my first time doing anything like this, but I have gotten some emails recently that asked me if... I would ever be selling like a hat or a t-shirt with my logo on it. And the answer is yes. And coffee mugs. Um, I'm going to start small and see how it goes. But um, yeah, so I'll let you all know when that is ready to go. And um, you will all hear about it on here and as well as my Facebook and Instagram pages. So stay tuned for all that information. In my last episode, I interviewed a paranormal crew named Misfit Apparitions while they were inside the Velisca Axe murder house doing a paranormal investigation. And they have released a video version of our interview from a different perspective than the one that I had posted to my channel. If you would like to see it, please head on over to their YouTube channel to check it out. And it's pretty cool because you can see what the parlor looked like inside the house. They've also uploaded a brand new video that shows part of their investigation. So head on over to MisfitApparitions.com to find the podcast and videos all in one spot, or please go subscribe and check out their YouTube channel. I have a link to all of that down below in the show notes. One last thing before we begin, I've been getting a lot of emails lately and messages from people that have listened to my Great Lakes episode. Um, I am very aware that Lake Huron is called Lake Huron, not Lake Horn. Um, So what happened was when I was typing my script, the predictive text kept changing it. I'm sure you guys have had that happen to you, right? Where the predictive text thinks it's smarter than you and it keeps changing a name that it doesn't recognize. So every time I typed in Lake Huron and moved on really fast, uh, the, the predictive text changed it to Horn for some silly reason. And when I got to recording that episode, I just read it 
straight and I did not even register that I was saying the wrong name. Uh, I don't have an editor. It's just me. So I don't have anyone to help me uh, realize that things are wrong. And when I posted the episode, nobody mentioned that it was wrong at the moment because I didn't have that many uh, listeners at that time. And a year later, someone did let me know that there was a mistake. And I was like, oh my God, that is so embarrassing. I do know the name of that lake. Let me fix it real quick. And I went in to try to find the file. I was going to re-record all the names that the name stamps of that lake. And then I realized that if you were following me on on my Instagram and Facebook for a while, you would know that at one point my computer crashed (laughs) and I lost some files. It just so happens the Great Lakes was one of the files that disappeared on me. Also lost the pages for that as well. So there's nothing I can do. I really don't want to re-record it. I'm sorry, but I do not have the time to fix it. So just think every time I say embarrassingly that it's like Horn, it's Huron. I know that. You know that. We all know that, right? So anyway, I do apologize that I messed up the name, but um, I just wanted to make that clear. I know I'm saying this way later. I should have made a statement about this, but by the time people let made me aware that I made the mistake, I was moving across the country and I did not have time to do too much about that. Then my computer was disconnected and I shipped it in front of me to move to this new state that I'm in. So it was a mess. And by the time I got into my apartment and unpacked all my stuff, I completely forgot about it. But yeah, until now, because I've been getting some very um, kind of rude emails lately from multiple people calling me stupid and an idiot and a moron. So I do not appreciate that. Just so you know, we all make mistakes and that was mine. But now you're aware why I couldn't go back and fix it because I don't have the file. Anyway, I just wanted to make that clear. If I ever make a mistake, just let it go. It's not a big deal. Plenty of other people have made mistakes on podcasts and um, yeah, it's just going to continue to happen because we all are not perfect. Okay, so that's all I needed to say. So now it's time to get this Boise, Idaho episode started after, of course, our monstrous moment. Today's monstrous moment is the Tehihan, also called the Little Cannibals of the Plains. There are many legends all over the world about small creatures ranging between two to four feet tall. I have talked about a few of them on the show before, like for instance, the legend of the mischievous Menehune in Hawaii that was told by the Polynesian culture, the elusive and trickstery Tommyknocker that was known to live deep inside mine shafts told by the Welsh people, or the story of gnomes from the UK known to hide out in caves guarding their treasure, their history dating back much longer than they have been a cute statue in our gardens. There are many other legends of these types of creatures dating back thousands of years in many different cultures all over the world. For instance, fairies, trolls, and leprechauns also come to mind. 
When these stories were started in ancient times, many of these cultures had never met each other before, yet they share stories and legends that sound very similar, and I always found that fascinating. North America was no different. Way before the Vikings or other colonizers showed up, the people living here were isolated from European influences, yet they too shared stories of groups of small creatures that they shared the land with. I talked about the Native American legend of the Pugwudgie before, and that was just one of the many types of so-called little people who are said to live in tribes all over the United States. According to an article from Mount Oglethorpe Foundation, and I have a link to this page down below in the show notes, they have a whole article dedicated to the legend of the little people that they call mystical dwarves of the mountains. This article focuses on areas of the Appalachian Trail, but I thought it was interesting and I wanted to include it. In the article, they spoke with a woman named Cindy who's of Indian heritage, and according to the legends that she was told by tribal elders, the little people in this area are often split into three groups, the dogwood people, the rock people, and the laurel people. According to these stories, the dogwood people are nice and do good things for people. The rock people are said to be mean and do not like strangers coming near them or their land. The laurel people are said to be mischievous and they like to play pranks on humans. They are said to live deep within the forests and have their homes in caves in the mountains. The legend of the Tenihon is found in the mythology of the Northern Plains tribes from the Cheyenne, the Sioux, and the Arapaho. They are described as hairy-faced warriors, often brandishing sharp spears and other weapons made from stone. The Tenihon are also said to be fierce in battle. They have a very warlike mentality and love to attack anyone who comes upon them. They are also said to be extremely fast and possessed superhuman strength. However, according to legends, they are also not the brightest bulbs in the shed. There are many stories of tribal hunters being captured or surrounded by the Tenihan hunting party, but they are able to escape using their wits over the Tenihan's thirst for violence. These creatures are also heartless, not just because they like to kill anyone they come across, but because they are literally heartless. According to legend, they keep their hearts inside their cave where they live. This makes them hard to kill because if you kill one out in the wild, they don't really die. They just re-manifest the next day into a new body because as long as their heart remains intact, then they will continue to live. Kind of like a video game character. If you die, you just respawn and continue the game. There is a tribal story about a hunter who was captured by the Tenihan and he was brought to one of their caves. The man decided to strike up a conversation with his captor who discovered quite quickly that his captor was not very smart. He asked him about the organs that were hanging on the wall of the cave and the Tenihan told him that they were his relatives who were out hunting. The man then began to stab each heart with a sharpened rock that he found inside the cave, and the Tenihan watching him did not think anything of it. He was not smart enough to realize that the man was killing his whole family that was out hunting. The man finally stabbed the heart of his captor, who then died, and the man was able to run back to his village for safety. 
According to articles I found online, links down below, there are other ways to stay safe from the Tenihon without killing them. The Sioux created musical numbers, dances, and rituals to ward them off. You can also bring a bag of sacred tobacco and use it as a sort of offering to keep them from attacking you. One other way to stay safe is to wear a medicine wheel. A medicine wheel, also known as a sacred hoop, is a sacred symbol used by many of the indigenous peoples who lived on the plains. Picture a circle and then divide it into four equal parts. The medicine wheel embodies the four directions as well as the father sky, the mother earth, and spirit tree. These different directions symbolize the dimensions of health and the cycle of life. There is way more to the medicine wheel than I had time to explain here, so please go down to the link in the show notes. I have it titled the medicine wheel so you can learn all about it. And if you think that simply getting this symbol from Etsy will keep you safe, then think again because it's stated multiple times that only true believers of the medicine wheel will be safe. While no one has proved that the little cannibals of the plains exist, it is still interesting how all over the world there are stories and legends of little people who hide in plain sight and cause mischief and mayhem to their human counterparts. The state of Idaho has thousands of years of history to explore from its once ancient cultures to the modern cities that it has today. The state has always played an important role in our country's history, with the city of Boise, Idaho becoming an important stop for the westward expansion. So you better saddle up those horses and get those wagons ready because we're taking the Oregon Trail out west. Hopefully we don't die of dysentery. Boise is the state capital for Idaho and the county seat for Ada County. The city is located in the southwestern part of Idaho in a river valley along the Boise River. The Boise River begins in the Sawtooth Mountains, a mountain range located in the Rocky Mountains. This river then flows westward for about 200 miles before it empties into the Snake River, just a few miles from the Oregon border. In addition to the Boise River, the southwestern area of Idaho has four other rivers that flow into the Snake River. This land is located in the High Desert, and the area has been called a few names over the years. First, it was Snake River Valley, and then it became Boise Valley, and today the area is known as Treasure Valley. Before the arrival of European and Mexican explorers, indigenous people gathered in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. Here, there were rock outcroppings that reached to the sky, and it's estimated that 8,000 indigenous peoples lived in what is now Idaho. The main tribes were the Shoshone, Bannock, Paiute, Nez Perce, and... Kootenay. And I do hope that I pronounced those names right, and if I didn't, I do apologize. The Boise Valley had an outcropping that they called Eagle Rock, and here people gathered peacefully. They also used the nearby hot water springs for healing and spiritual purposes. The area was also used as a sacred burial site. 
Spanish explorers came to the area starting in 1592. They brought pigs, horses, domestic fowl, and planted various crops, including tomatoes, beans, corn, and even garlic. In 1805, Lewis and Clark were the first Euro-Americans to visit the region, and they met indigenous people who were bilingual in Spanish and their tribal language. French-Canadian fur trappers came through the land next, and they are credited with naming the Boise River. Since the region is a high desert, the main plant growth would be found along the rivers, kind of like an ever-flowing oasis. French-Canadian, Spanish, and Mexican fur trappers continued to live off the land in the 1800s. The first Fort Boise was built by the Hudson Bay Company to help supply and protect the fur trade. This fort was located where the Boise River emptied into the Snake River near today's town of Parma, Idaho. The fort also became an important supplier for wagon trains traveling on the Oregon Trail, which ran through the Boise Valley thanks to Manifest Destiny. The fort was abandoned in 1854 because of flooding and attacks from local indigenous tribes. Gold was discovered in the Boise Valley in 1862, shortly followed by silver also being discovered in the area. Idaho City, located about 40 miles east in the foothills, quickly became a boom town filled with miners hoping to strike it rich. Ranchers and farmers also settled around Boise to supply the gold and silver mining communities. Some of these ranchers included Mexican vaqueros, also known as cowboys. The United States built a new fort named Fort Boise in 1863, closer to the boomtown of Boise, Idaho, to protect settlers and miners from conflicts with local Native American tribes and bank robberies. The fort was renamed to the Boise Barracks in 1879. In addition to serving as a military base, Boise Barracks also became a community center and housed several social events. It became an important part of the development of the city. One of the founding fathers of Boise was Thomas Jefferson Davis. Tom and his brother Frank left their home in Cincinnati, Ohio for the Idaho Territory after joining a company of 75 men, all hoping to find gold. He tried his luck at mining until he realized there was a great need for fresh fruits and vegetables, so Tom traded in his pickaxe for a plow. He claimed 360 acres in 1863 for an official farm. Tom planted onions, potatoes, and cabbage for his first crops in 1863. The next year, his farm grew and he decided to plant an apple orchard of 7,000 trees. He also applied for water rights, which allowed him to divert the river from the Boise River to irrigate his land. He increased the amount of land that he owned and gained large profits from his new business. Tom did not stop there. He wanted to make the rough and rugged mining town more modern and give it a hometown feel. So he and eight other businessmen planned the first layout for the official town of Boise on July 7, 1863. Tom married Julia McCrum from Ontario, Canada in 1871 after meeting her two years earlier when she was visiting her uncle who then was an army surgeon at Fort Boise. Together they had six children and Julia was known for being kind and gracious to immigrants who were traveling on the Oregon Trail. Tom Davis offered the city 43 acres of his land 
to be used as a public park in 1900. The city was not sure if they could maintain the land, but they finally agreed and accepted the land in 1907. Julia passed away on September 19, 1907, and Tom asked that the city name the park Julia Davis Park in her memory. Tom died the next year on June 10, 1908. Julia Davis Park was the first official park in Boise, and it led to the Boise River Greenbelt that joins 12 different parks along the Boise River. These parks have all been donated to the city in honor of famous female civic leaders. After the gold rush was over, the population of Boise began to decline because it was located far from main transportation lines. Local citizens developed irrigation systems which required the construction of various dams and reservoirs. The irrigation systems led to an increase in agriculture. When Idaho became a state in 1864, Boise was chosen as the capital, but the official Capitol building was not completed until 1920. And in 1925, the Union Pacific Railroad was the first railway service to build a depot in Boise. And this created a new revival for the town that was slowly becoming a full city. During World War II, the U.S. military created Godwin Field and used it for training pilots. As I mentioned earlier, the valley today is known as Treasure Valley. And in 1959, the president of the Valley's Chamber of Commerce wanted to bring in more tourism into the area. So he came up with the new name Treasure Valley, and it seemed to have worked because ever since then, about 40% of the population of Idaho lives in the Treasure Valley area. After the gold rush ended, the main industry had been agriculture, but in the last 20 years or so, other businesses have been established in Treasure Valley. Boise also relies heavily on their tourism, and if you love the outdoors, Boise would be a great place for you to visit. There are hundreds of walking, hiking, and biking trails around the city and throughout the area. The Boise River offers places for paddle boarding, kayaking, or floating during the summer, and raft rides. The hot springs in Idaho City are only about 45 minutes away, and just 16 miles away is the Boise Mountain, where you can downhill or cross-country ski in the wintertime. There is even a whitewater park where kayakers and surfers can practice. While the city is very modern today, they still have a rough-and-tumble history that comes from the old boom town that was once there, and it's not shocking to hear that the city has many ghost stories and legends attached to it. So let's get those virtual walking shoes on as we learn a little bit more history while we discuss some very famous haunted hotspots. The first stop on our tour is the historic Eidenhaw Building, originally known as the Eidenhaw Hotel. This large five-story building located at 10th and Main Street still stands out due to its French chateau-style architecture. As the boomtown continued to grow in the late 1800s, more hotels were desperately needed to create lodgings for people streaming out west in search of gold and a better life. Among those traveling were the upper class, and with the upper class came new business opportunities. And it 
was decided that a new hotel was needed for the country's elites. The strange thing about this hotel is there are not many records as to who actually built it, but the architecture was believed to be W.S. Walter Campbell. So there is a bit of mystery behind the origins of the hotel, and with mysteries come rumors. Here is what we do know. The hotel costs around $125,000 to build, and it opened in 1901. And when it opened, it was the tallest building in the city. The lobby was large and grand, and the hotel had many modern features. The hotel also boasted the very first elevator in the whole state, and people came from all over just to take a ride on this amazing new piece of technology. Over its history, the building has seen its fair share of famous moments. In 1907, it housed many excited onlookers for Idaho's trial of the century, involving the assassination of Idaho's former governor, Frank Stutenberg. Frank had been the governor of Idaho from 1897 to 1901. He was killed in 1905 by Harry Orchard. When Stutenberg entered his property on the night of December 30th, 1905, he was blown up by dynamite that was rigged to explode when the gate to his front yard opened. Harry was suspected because he was seen a few days earlier looking at Stutenberg's home through binoculars. When Harry was arrested and interrogated, they discovered that he was working under the direct orders of the Western Federation of Miners. They were a large labor union that was locked in a brutal fight against the Cripple Creek Mining Owners Association. The strikes and riots had to be shut down with military force. While Harry was being interrogated, he also confessed to many other acts of violence, including being behind another explosion that claimed 17 lives. Before Strutenberg was officially assassinated, Frank rigged another bomb inside the Eidenhaw Hotel to try to kill Strutenberg while he was still governor. However, that attempt was called off due to the governor being surrounded by more high-profile people than expected. The Eidenau Hotel lobby was large and grand enough to host several famous speeches, inaugurations, parties, and balls. The hotel also housed many high-profile guests, from wealthy families to American presidents such as Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft. The hotel managed to survive the Great Depression, but it slowly lost its grand hotel status. Eventually, the rooms were converted into apartments, with the first floor mainly being retail shops and home to the popular 10th Street Station Bar. Today, the apartment complex has a famous bar in the basement and other good restaurants on the main floor. The building is also known for many legends and ghosts wandering its halls. While the hotel was being converted into apartments, it's said that construction workers noticed some strange things going on, from tools that went missing and being found far from its last location, to strange sounds of footsteps down empty hallways. But stories of the hotel being haunted stretch back to its opening days. According to a famous local legend, just a few days after its opening, it said that a man went insane and stabbed his wife to death with a pair of scissors. Then, grief-stricken, he buried her body in the basement and left town. Later, the hotel experienced an even more strange and documented death. One night during 1921, a man named Alexander Palmer Jacobs stayed the night 
at the hotel after being disappointed of his first choice of lodgings at the Bristol Hotel. Mr. Jacobs arrived at the Eidenhaw Hotel around 11.30 p.m. Around 1 o'clock a.m., the front desk received a phone call from one of Jacobs' relatives asking them if Jacobs had returned to the room. Then after receiving confirmation, they hung up. Around 3 o'clock a.m., Mr. Jacobs used the phone to call his wife. Then around 5 o'clock a.m., someone called asking for the desk to call them back if Mr. Jacobs left the hotel. Fifteen minutes later, two people were walking past the hotel on the sidewalk when they heard the sound of a window and a shade being opened above them. Turning to look up, they saw a man climb out of the window pause on the ledge, and then jump. He was killed instantly when he landed on the sidewalk below. A horrifying sight to the poor people walking on the street down below. When police examined his room, they said that they discovered a cup of liquid that people took during this time before an x-ray examination, along with a business card for a doctor in Boise. They also discovered that Jacobs was worth quite a bit of money for the time, and he owned an 80-acre ranch along with various properties around Boise, and that he was related to one of the earliest merchants in town when Boise was just starting out. While many think that he committed suicide due to maybe an unfortunate medical diagnosis, some think that he was killed for his money and that it was all a setup but only the walls of the hotel know the truth. Another death occurred later on. In the 1970s, a bellman was sadly in the wrong place at the wrong time and was shot and died of his injuries. People visiting and living in the building have reported all sorts of strange paranormal activity. Many are what you would expect from a classic haunting, such as curtains moving on their own, locked doors that open and close by themselves, lights flickering on and off, as well as random cold spots. Some have claimed to see a woman wandering the halls and many think that this is the lady that is said to be buried in the basement. The sound of disembodied voices have also been heard throughout the building. Other strange occurrences is the sound of moaning from closets. When people open the door to investigate, the sound stops. A gray mist has also been seen floating around the hotel, in and out of rooms. It has even been known to glide through solid walls and locked doors. Some people have had truly terrifying experiences, like having the bed covers being pulled off of them while they are sleeping. Some people have even been grabbed by their ankles by an unseen force and drug onto the floor. There have also been poltergeist activity reported in one of the restaurant's kitchens. Workers have experienced pots and pans come smashing to the floor, and on some occasions, a pot or a pan has come flying at someone's head. Sharp silverware has also been known to be thrown at workers. The most active spirit in the hotel, or well, now apartment complex, is the bellman. He likes to operate the elevator when no one is on it, and he likes to mess with people who are taking a ride. Many have claimed to have been taken to the wrong floor, with the doors opening to empty hallways. Some have even heard moaning and screaming coming from the elevator shaft. So, if you are thinking that you'd like to live in these apartments, you might want to bring some sage with you. And if you do live in these apartments, you must be very brave.
Our next location is the Idaho State Penitentiary. In 1867, President Andrew Jackson approved the construction of a new penitentiary in Boise. Construction began in 1870, about two miles from the downtown area on 230 acres. The location was picked because there was a large amount of sandstone available in the nearby foothills perfect for building the prison walls. The first 11 inmates came in 1872 and they were put to work cutting sandstone to build the wall and cell houses. Over time, other buildings were added and I could not imagine being not only a prisoner, but building my own prison that will someday keep me from looking out at nature or town or anything around. No matter the crime or reason for these prisoners, I think that would be pretty hard on the human psyche in general. The penitentiary operated for 101 years and housed over 13,000 inmates over that time period. Once completed, the prison could house 600 inmates at a time. The prison also held its fair share of famous inmates, one of which included Harry Orchard, the man we learned about earlier, who was imprisoned for assassinating the former Idaho governor in 1905. Another famous inmate was Ray Snowden, who was nicknamed Idaho's Jack the Ripper. The reason for this nickname was because on September 23, 1956, Snowden violently attacked a mother of two named Cora Dean. He stabbed her more than 30 times with a large pocket knife. While he was in prison awaiting his death sentence, he bragged about killing at least two other women, although he was never convicted. His death sentence was carried out on October 18, 1957. The prison also had a woman's wing, and inside it was another famous inmate named Linda Southhand. She was one of the first documented female serial killers in the United States. Her nickname was Idaho's Lady Bluebeard, and she had a reputation for killing several of her husbands in order to collect money from their life insurance policies. She was what we now call a Black Widow murderer. Over its 101-year history, the prison housed 13,000 convicts, including 215 women. The prison closed in 1973 following a riot by inmates who were protesting living conditions. Today, it is named the Old Pen, and it's a museum that is maintained by the Idaho Historical Society. They have also preserved some of the original sandstone cell blocks. Inside of the museum, you can learn about the prison through photographs and artifacts that were found on site. They also offer historical tours, but if you are interested in the paranormal, they also have ghost tours. Old Penn is said to be extremely haunted by the rough and tumble inmates that passed away inside its walls. Prisons were, and still are, really harsh places to live, and many of these inmates who stayed at Old Penn died, either by being murdered by other inmates or even sometimes the guards themselves. The elements at Old Penn were brutal. They had no heat or air conditioning. Many suffered and died due to extreme conditions from stiflingly hot summers to brutally cold winters. 
11 state executions also took place inside the prison, and over 100 inmates died while being incarcerated. It appears that many of these lost souls are still trapped inside even in death. Many paranormal crews have visited the prison, including the Ghost Adventures crew. People who have come to investigate have reported a lot of emotional feelings, like an overwhelming feeling of sadness, fear, and a heavy presence. Some have also felt like they are being watched as they walk around inside the cell blocks. Shadowy figures have also been seen walking and or running down the hallways. Many think that Ray Snowden's ghost still hangs out around the prison. When people go near his old cell area, people reportedly feel a sudden sense of dread and like they have to get out. The inmates lived a very violent lifestyle and that has not seemed to change in death. Many guests reportedly have been grabbed, pushed, and even scratched. This has happened while on ghost tours at night, but it has also happened on just the historical tours in the middle of the day. Tour guides have also been approached by several guests describing strange experiences on the property. Even some skeptics have claimed to have witnessed things that they cannot truly understand or explain. People have experienced disembodied voices, footsteps, banging sounds, and even the sound of cell doors opening and closing. Up next, Boise State University. Every big American university is famous for their men and women's athletic programs, but they are also famous for having ghost stories and urban legends. The most famous ghost story on campus is attached to the Department of Communications building. This two-story building was built in 1942 and at first was used as the student's union when the college was Boise State Junior College. The building was one of the first three main buildings on campus, and it was nicknamed the Corral. It was nicknamed this because the school's mascot is Buster Bronco. The idea of having a Bronco as the school mascot was decided by the junior college students in 1932, and Buster is still a fan favorite on game day. The building is and was a gathering place for civic and social events. The student union was enlarged in the 1950s when the first residence halls were built. More student-centered activities were needed, so dances and club meetings were held inside the student union center. The population of the college greatly increased after 1965 when Boise State Junior College was changed to an official four-year college. This led to the building of the new student union. In 1967, the old student union became the Music Drama Building, and then in 1984, it was remodeled and became home to the Department of Communications and Department of Media Building. And as we all know, every college needs a good legend. <laughs>
During the 1950s, there was to be a big dance at the corral. This dance was talk of the university, but no one was more excited than a girl named Dinah. She was head over heels in love with her boyfriend, who also attended the same university. They had been dating for several months, and Dinah was sure that he was the one. When he asked her if she would go to the big dance with him, she was thrilled and told everyone who would listen about it, and she even bought a fancy new dress for the occasion. However, the day before the big dance, her date suddenly canceled, but he assured her that he still wanted to be with her. Dinah was really upset and she told him angrily that she's not going to the dance at all if he's not going. But the next day, she decided last minute to go on her own and maybe meet up with some friends at the dance and try to salvage the rest of the night. When she entered the dance hall, to her shock, she saw him dancing with another woman. Brokenhearted, she ran from the room and down the back staircase, crying the whole way. She was devastated and felt that she could not go on without his love or the embarrassment of being played for a fool. Grief-stricken, she decided to hang herself in one of the bathroom stalls. She was discovered later that evening. Ever since her shocking death, the building has been haunted by her ghost. People have said to have seen her wandering the halls and heard her screaming into the night. As tragic as this story sounds, is there any truth to this legend? Well, not that I could find. There is actually no record of anyone dying inside the building at all. But the story of Dinah came from a true paranormal experience. One night, a teacher was working late when he suddenly noticed that some writing had appeared on one of the chalkboards. This made no sense because he saw that they had been completely clean when he entered his classroom earlier. Startled, he asked if anyone was in the room and he got no answer. Thinking that someone had snuck in and played a prank on him, he moved to the hallway and asked loudly, is anyone there? He suddenly heard the sound of a piano playing from an empty room down the hall. The song that was playing was an old song titled I've Been Working on the Railroad, and the part that was being played was the Dino Won't You Blow portion of the song. He went and checked it out, and the piano was playing by itself, and there was no one in the entire building. The piano music stopped once he entered the room. This is how the ghost in the building was named Dinah, and the legend sprang up around it. Just because the legend is not true does not mean that this entity is not there. Many people have reported hearing the sound of crying, screaming, and disembodied footsteps. The sound of a woman talking in empty rooms has also been reported, along with an apparition of a woman walking around the building. People have also said that the building has been haunted for years, ever since its opening. So the question is, what came first, the ghost or the legend? Was there already a ghost inside the building and someone gave it a name and backstory due to the song being played on the piano? Or could this be a tulpa with the legend starting first and then the entity manifesting itself because enough people believed it? Or could it be a bit of both? Maybe an old entity was on the property and it took the form of the legendary Dinah. These are all just theories, of course, and rumors, but I'm not here to dispel the rumors. I'm here to give them to you. 
So what do you think? Is Dinah a tulpa, an entity that was already there, or something else? Our next location is the Oahi Building. The Oahi Hotel was built in 1910. After the Eidenhaw opened its doors, the town continued to grow and more hotel space was needed. The Oahi Hotel was built to be six stories tall and it had around 125 rooms. One of the main attractions of the hotel was its rooftop garden, which had a restaurant, bar, and a dance floor with live band performances there on special occasions. The hotel became a popular resting spot for people traveling from Seattle or Portland to Salt Lake City. Over the years, the Oahi building has changed owners many times along with being remodeled and renovated. It has been used as a hotel, a boarding house, corporate headquarters for the Arida Company, and in 2013, the building was heavily renovated, turning it into a mixed space building, which has a bar and restaurant on the ground floor called the Oahi Tavern Steak and Sea, two different hair salons, meeting rooms, and apartments on the upper floors. The building now has a modern and upscale look with amenities. This old building has also been known for its poltergeist activity and many apparitions. Ever since its opening, guests and employees have reported some strange happenings. Lights like to turn on and off on their own, objects move on their own, and some ghosts even seem to enjoy messing with the TV by turning it on and off. They also change the channel on the watcher, which do not appreciate personally. I would get really annoyed if a ghost did that to me when I was watching my favorite show. The elevator also likes to stop on random floors and move around when no one has summoned it. Strange noises both inside apartments and down hallways have also been reported. I could not find anything too nefarious that has happened inside this building, but many people have seen apparitions wandering throughout the hotel, dressed in period clothing of various decades. Most of the ghosts seem to pay no attention to the living and look as if they're just going about their day. And that makes me think this might be residual energy. The ghost of a man has also been seen walking around the building, both day and night. Once people notice him, he quickly disappears in front of their eyes. The most famous story comes from a couple who were staying in room 336 when it was open as an operating hotel. A man and his wife were laying in bed asleep when the man's wife was suddenly awoken from a deep sleep. She was still sleepy and she was trying to understand what had woken her up. Letting her eyes adjust, she decided to sit up in bed and then realized that she was staring at an apparition of a woman standing at the foot of their bed. The woman claimed that while she was startled, she did not feel afraid. She asked the woman who she was and what she wanted with them, and the ghost did not answer. She simply stared at her and then vanished before her eyes. The woman then woke up her husband to tell him what had happened. The next morning, they went down to the front desk to report the incident, and the desk clerk told them that they were not the only ones to have experienced something like this inside that room. Exactly why this hotel seems to be so haunted is a mystery, but I like to think that ghosts need somewhere to stay too, and if the building was once a hotel and it was familiar to them, then why not stop by for a quick visit? The 
last stop on our tour is the Egyptian theater. And you guys know how much I love a good old fashioned haunted theater story. The Egyptian theater was a movie theater built in 1927. King Tut's tomb was discovered in 1922 and that led to the Egyptian revival style architecture to become popular in the 1920s. The theater opened on April 19, 1927 with 1,600 seats and it proved to be very popular. The Fox Theater chain took over the operation of the theater a couple of years later, changing its name to Fox, and they kept it until the 1940s. In the early 1940s, the Paramount Theater chain bought the theater and renamed it Ada, which was the governor's wife's name. In the 1960s, the theater was in danger of having its organs sold and the building torn down but a local group of friends tried to save the theater. They held what they thought was a one-night showing at the theater. They chose Wings, the 1927 Academy Award-winning World War I film. The theater received so much publicity that people wanted to save it. A man named Earl Hardy, who was a preservationist, fell in love with the theater and they convinced him to buy it to preserve it. The first steps were to restore the interior artwork and decorations, which included four large pillars painted with Egyptian-inspired artwork. More work was done in 1999 by Harding's daughter and her husband. The Egyptian theater is now a historical landmark of Boise. Today, the theater is available as a performing arts and movie venue. Some of the events include concerts, opera performances, film festivals, movie premieres, and guest speakers. The building can also be reserved for weddings, parties, and other business events. I'm going to be posting pictures of this theater on my Patreon page for my Patreons, but if you are not a Patreon member, I highly recommend Googling this theater. The artwork is gorgeous on the inside, and I just cannot believe that at one point they were just going to tear it all down and be done with it. It's so pretty and interesting and so old 1920s that it just hurts my heart to know that someone wanted to get rid of it. I'm so glad they were able to preserve it. Today, the theater is not just famous for its 1920s style Egyptian artwork, it's also famous for its resident ghost. Over the years, people have reported strange things happening inside the theater, from voices on empty stages to even organ music playing on its own. But the most famous ghost is the man in the projection room. Ever since the 1930s, guests, theater crews, and workers alike have reported seeing someone up in the projection room. When people go to investigate, they either find it completely empty or the only door in and out is completely locked with no one else inside. In the early 2000s, a local news channel, KTRV Fox 12, did a piece on the theater being haunted. The reporter interviewed a man who had a paranormal experience inside the theater. Tom Corthen was the house manager during the time of this interview. He still could be, but I'm not sure. But according to Tom, he has seen some strange things that he cannot explain. 
but one day he felt something touch the back of his leg. He can't explain being touched by unseen hands, and yet it happened to him clear as day. He said that he's not sure how it happened, but it still brings up some really interesting questions for him. He also talked about when it happened, it wasn't just the physical feeling of being touched in the leg, but it was also an emotional one. And that's something that I have noticed in my paranormal research that I've done and from things that happened to me. It's not just a, yeah, I saw something down that hallway or I felt something brush against me. It's this strange gut feeling that you get when you experience these kinds of things, almost as if there's something wrong in the situation. It's really hard to explain and it can be really overwhelming. And the feeling is just weird. If you've ever felt that feeling, then you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't felt that feeling, well, I actually think you're very lucky because it's very creepy, especially when you experience it for the very first time. So during the news segment that was on TV, the lead reporter and a paranormal investigator who was with them both saw someone standing inside the projection booth while they were standing on the dark and empty stage. And he was pretty freaked out about it too. He made sure that they checked and the door was locked. And when he went to look, there was no one inside. After he realized that there was no way someone could have gotten in and out of that room without them seeing, he got pretty rattled and he decided not to go back to the stage. For the entity that hangs out in the projection room, the historical society think it could be the ghost of a man named Joe who worked at the theater as a projectionist in the 1920s. He sadly died of a heart attack in the early 1930s and many believe that his ghost comes back to check on the theater and make sure that everything is still in working order. Another guest said to roam the theater is a woman dressed in 1920s style clothing. She is thought to have been on the theater's original managerial staff. She likes to check on guests on movie nights and see that the stagehands have everything ready for live performances. Out of any ghosts that can haunt a building, at least the ones at the Egyptian theater are helpful and seem to enjoy hanging out with modern day movie buffs. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode about the haunted spots in Boise, Idaho. Like always, I had a lot of fun covering this location and I hope that you guys enjoyed listening to it. I also hope that I got the names of these locations correctly and if I didn't, I do apologize, but I tried my best. If you would like to learn more about any of the locations I talked about, please check out all of my sources down below. I do not have time to go over all of the history and there's still some really cool history down there for you to check out. Once again, a big thank you to Scott for suggesting this episode. And our next episode is going to be about Trinity Church and St. Paul's Chapel in New York. And that was suggested by Timothy. And my next bonus episode for my Patreons will be about the strangeness in Oregon. Oregon. 
Oregon is a very weird place and I cannot wait to talk about some of the local legends and lore and yeah, many cryptids to talk about there as well. Not just Bigfoot, even though he's the most famous, but there's a lot more to the tale than meets the eye. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for me today. Thank you all so much again for joining me for today's episode. Make sure you follow me on Facebook and Instagram to get all the latest up-to-date news with what's going on with me because I have run into some health issues since I started recording this episode. This episode took me about a month to record in little chunks. I've been very busy with um, doctor's appointments and other things going on, but I think it's all going to work out in the end. I have some procedures I have to do in two weeks. Uh, I'm not looking forward to those, but I'm going to hopefully get some answers. And I'm a very private person. I don't really talk too much about what happens to me. But at the same time, I feel like you guys are waiting for me to create new content. So I felt like it was a good idea to share a little bit of what's going on. So hopefully it'll all work out. And I am just very excited for the new year. Like I said in the beginning, just make sure to follow me on Facebook and Instagram. I'm going to have some new announcements to make very soon. I'm making a new website. I'm going to start selling merchandise. So there's a lot coming and I am just so, so excited. So once again, thank you all so much. I hope you have a fantastic day and I cannot wait to see you back here real soon on Historically Haunted. Bye everybody. Bye.